You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Into Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church this morning. Um, you know, I thought a lot about it and um, I felt like it would be good. Uh, for us to get back into a rhythm of uh, walking our way uh, through this uh, letter that we had begun um, before all of the effects of the uh, pandemic um, prohibited us from meeting together. And so I'm praying that the Lord would have a word for us today from the end of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, even though this specific word won't deal directly with our current circumstances. If you will, turn with me in your Bible um, to 1 Corinthians, to the last paragraph in chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today. Beginning in verse 18, this is what Paul writes. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God. Father, this morning, as we enter back into this letter that we began so many weeks ago, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to get up to speed, so to speak, and Father, to dive right back in and to pick right back up where we left off. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. There's no way that we can understand these scriptures. No way, Father, that we can apply our lives to them. Father, no way that we're going to be changed into the people that you would have us to become if your spirit does not work within us and among us. And I'm so grateful that your spirit can work regardless of whether we're all in the same room or not. I'm grateful that as I pray for your people and think of names and faces and families gathered around computers or in front of TVs, that your Holy Spirit can reach down right now and touch them and convict them and comfort them and change them. It's such great news. So I pray now that you'll take your word read and plant it in our hearts today and you'll take the word preached and use that to bear good fruit in our lives as everyday disciples. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and we're going to close out that chapter today. And just a few minutes ago, before we went live um, as a team on Facebook, I posted a little video, hopefully to try to catch you up to speed on where we've been. I just walked through very, very briefly chapters 1 and 2 and into 3. And so we're going to close out chapter 3 this morning. And we're going to talk today about the cross-shaped remedy 
for self-deception. Now you'll notice how Paul begins this final paragraph. He says, let no one deceive himself. It's a warning, in fact, a warning to you and to me as much as it was a warning to the believers in Corinth. The reality is, friends, that the possibility of self-deception is real and high. Like Adam and Eve, Um, upon being confronted by God about their disastrous sin choice, we all have an incredible inclination toward self-deception. In other words, we, we have a hard time admitting that our biggest problem is not outside of us. In fact, our biggest problem is inside of us. Instead, we shift the blame. Why? Because we traffic in self-deception. Now, what is self-deception? Here's a definition for you. It's the ability to tell yourself a lie and not catch yourself in the lie. It's the remarkable ability that you and I have to swindle ourselves to fool ourselves into believing things that aren't true. It's the ability to pull the wool over our own eyes without realizing that we're doing it to ourselves. That sounds strange when it's defined like that, doesn't it? It's almost absurd to stop and think that self-deception's even a possibility, that I can tell myself a lie and actually believe the lie I tell myself without even being any the wiser that I've told myself a lie that I've then believed. That's absurd. But we traffic in it all the time. Addicts who are unwilling and unprepared to admit that they have a problem. Traffic in self-deception. Family members who refuse to believe that an addicted family member has a real problem. Traffic in self-deception. Despite all evidence to the contrary. The father who refuses to believe that his precious little boy is actually the school bully, despite all evidence, traffics in self-deception. The mother who refuses to believe that her precious daughter could ever spread lies to damage another student's reputation, despite evidence to the contrary, traffics in self-deception. Employees who receive poor job performance evaluations in spite of the fact that multiple people have confirmed those evaluations traffic in self-deception. The young man looking at internet porn convinces himself that the women on the screen enjoy what they're doing and couldn't possibly be victims of trafficking. The person who tries out for the singing competition and refuses to believe a word the judges say about their inability to sing, even though they clearly can't sing, is trafficking in self-deception. The nonprofit leader who uses money donated to the organization to buy a personal car or 
a personal plane or to fund an all-expenses-paid vacation to some, some exotic island and sees nothing wrong with it. Traffics and self-deceptions. Parents who insist that their 40-year-old child who made a profession of faith in Jesus at five but hasn't shown a hint of love for Jesus or any evidence of spiritual fruit since often traffic in self-deception. You know, the most significant problem with self-deception is the dangerous combination of the two things, self and deception. Chances are that if you and I are deceiving ourselves, we won't even know it. Because, well, we're deceiving ourselves. In the end, it is self-deception that allows us to continue in more serious sin and have not a care or a concern in the world about what we're doing, who we're affecting, or how our lives are going to end up. In other words, you know what? There's a kind of wrongdoing that's actually possible only after you've convinced yourself that certain things are true. What things am I talking about? Well, these kinds of things. It's not my fault. If she hadn't, or if he hadn't, then I wouldn't have. That's called blame shifting. Or what about this one? Well, I know that's wrong, but it's so small. Just look at all the good I'm doing. We could call that atoning. Or what about this one? Okay, I admit it. It's wrong, but at least it's not as bad as fill in the blank. Comparison. Self-deception or self-swindling enables us to avoid all of the negative feelings associated with the wrongdoing, the guilt, the remorse, the shame, the self-contempt, all to maintain some sort of flattering self-image. Now dig deeper than that. And getting at the very heart of the matter, self-deception enables us to avoid the traumatic truth that there is a God. And I'm completely and totally accountable to Him for all of my thoughts, all of my desires, and all of my actions. Now, Self-deception is a compounded problem in our culture because we elevate something called authenticity as the highest ideal. The idea that the supreme goal of life is to discover and express my truest self unrestricted by others from doing so. Okay, now listen. That's why tolerance is highest on the list of virtues in our culture. And it's why intolerance is the lowest. The greatest sin in a culture of authenticity is to tell someone else that the self that they want to be is not the self that they should be that they are, in fact, self-deceived. 
But what if the self that I want to be, what if the self that you want to be is in fact not the self that I should be or you should be? What if the things that I most desire are not the things that I should desire? This is what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to get there at some point. But just listen to these words. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now take that little paragraph and pick your poison, pick your chosen way of life. And we live in a culture that is swimming in a sea of self-deception. And look, church, lest we think we are free from the potential to deceive ourselves once we're Christians, you and I need to remember who Paul is issuing this warning to and why. The Corinthian believers, they had embraced the notions of their neighbors about the persuasive power of public speakers. Remember all of those conversations that we've already had from chapters 1 all the way up until this point? The people in the church at Corinth had aligned themselves with the all-star teachers of the faith. Peter and Paul and Apollos. And in the process, they were following in the footsteps, not of Jesus, but of the world around them. Thus, Paul warns the church here, let no one deceive himself. And it's a warning that we need to hear too. We can just as easily get caught up in worldly thinking and living that's fueled by self-swindling and self-flattery. Self-convinced that our hearts aren't quite as easily led astray from the gospel as they actually are. In the end, folks, self-swindling, self-deception is a powerful hindrance to spiritual growth. It prevents you and I from seeing those areas where we are deficient, those sinful desires that we continue to feed through blame shifting or atoning or through comparison rather than owning up to them and surrendering them to Christ. Self-deception prevents us from coming to him for help, the help that we need to mature because if we're self-deceived, guess what, friends? We don't think we need it. The very idea that we could be self-deceived should compel us to cry out to the Lord who alone can untangle and understand the human heart. Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10 say this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 
Did you hear that? It is the Lord who must search the human heart and test the human mind, who must untangle and expose all the mixture of mixed motives and self-deception in which we traffic. That means the reality is that apart from awakening Grace, the very grace of God that awakens us to our sinful condition, a condition that runs to the very core of our being. You and I are going to remain wise in our own eyes, doing exactly what the people of God did throughout the book of Judges. What was right in their own eyes. So a couple of questions for you. In light of the potential for self-deception, how often do you pray for open eyes to see your own heart and your own mind more clearly? Do you have close Christian friends who can see past the temptation to deceive yourself, who have permission to speak gospel truth into your life? Now, Paul in this passage also offers the cure or the remedy for self-deception. Verse 18 again. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Did you catch what Paul says in verse 18? He says, if anyone thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become truly wise. Now, if we're trafficking along in the argument, that wording should take us right back to chapter 1 where Paul says in verse 18 that the word of the cross is foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness when it's placed up against what the wisdom of the world thinks is wise. And so Paul is saying here that if you and I want to truly become wise in God's eyes, we have to embrace the foolish message of the cross. Now how does the cross remedy our self-deception? The divine wisdom of the cross exposes us as sinners in need of salvation. It shows us that we are in fact to blame. In other words, the wisdom of the cross puts blame shifting to bed. The divine wisdom of the cross also exposes not only the reality of our sin, but the reality of what our sin deserves. When you and I come to terms with what Jesus had to endure in order to pay the price for our sin, you and I come to realize that it's really not a matter of comparison between us and between others. In fact, it's a matter of comparison between our hearts and the perfect law of God to which we can never and will never measure up. The divine wisdom of the cross ultimately then exposes the remedy that's required. Only a perfect atoning sacrifice will do. The sacrifice of one without sin. Friend, it doesn't matter how much you and I do that we deem good 
in order to try to erase or outweigh the things that we know are bad but want to hide, you and I can never do enough to attain the level of perfection that a perfect and holy God requires. That means the sacrifice of a sinless one is required on our behalf. And there at the cross of Calvary, Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God, gave himself for our sin. And because we would much rather put out the light and pretend it didn't exist, the wisdom of the cross shows us that in our sin, we are more capable of trying to silence God, just like those who put Jesus to death. Bottom line, the wisdom of the cross dethrones me. The wisdom of the cross puts me in my place by the grace of God so that I can see myself for who I really am so that I can see my need clearly and so that I can embrace God as God and embrace his incredible provision for me in Jesus Christ. According to Paul, the dark spell of self-deception is broken when we come and we eat from that tree of life, that blood-stained, rugged, and splintered tree where we humble ourselves, where we abandon the wisdom of the world, where we realize the fruitlessness and the futility of doing what's right in our own eyes. And we embrace the cross. We embrace the very message of God that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the very power of God to those who are being saved. They are in that place at the foot of the cross on Mount Calvary is where self-deception withers and true self-knowledge is born. There at the cross, by grace and grace alone, you and I receive God's word so that when God says we're lost, we receive that as wisdom. There, when God says we need a Savior to rescue us from sin's penalty, from its power, and from its presence in our lives and in our world, we receive that as wisdom. When God says that the way of rescue, the way of remedy, has been provided through the man Christ Jesus who bled and died for you and for me on a tree some 2,000 years ago, you and I receive that as Wisdom. When that same Jesus says to you and says to me, if you want to live forever, turn from your sin, take up your cross, and follow me. You and I receive that by grace as life-giving wisdom. When as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, you read in the word of God, that the wisdom of this world is folly with God and you receive that as wisdom and you ask your disciple-making Savior to teach you how to discern rightly the foolishness of the world from the wisdom of God. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There at the cross, you remove yourself from the place of highest authority 
in your life. And you enthrone God as the supreme authority. And that's exactly what Proverbs 9.10 calls the very beginning of wisdom. The writer of Proverbs writes there, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now what does it mean to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord throughout the scriptures is a multifaceted thing, okay? But supremely, to fear the Lord is to acknowledge that God and God alone is God. And to submit your life solely to his good and gracious authority, believing that he knows much better than you do how to live the life that he's given you. You know, at its root, self-deception is fueled and feasts on pride. Obadiah, little book in the Old Testament, chapter 1, verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? When it comes right down to it, the pride of thinking that we know best how to live the lives that God has given us, the pride that fueled Adam and Eve to first take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and consume it is the very pride that undergirds and grounds and fuels our self-deception today. But Paul says here that the cross is the place where humility begins and where it takes root in our lives. I wonder if you're watching today and you realize perhaps for the first time in your life that you've just been fooling yourself. Perhaps for years even, believing that somehow, some way, all of your wrongs weren't really your fault or just trying to do enough good things to keep your conscience quiet or justifying the wrong that you've been doing by comparing your little wrongs to the much bigger wrongs of others. Maybe as Paul says, God will do. God has graciously caught you in your craftiness today. Maybe the Lord who knows your thoughts just as Paul says he does right here in this paragraph, has exposed you to your own self-deception today. And out of love for you, God is calling you to own up to your sin and to come home to him by way of the cross. At the end of the day, it's his grace and his grace alone that will lead you out of self-deception. Grace enables you to get low before God, knowing that God has promised in his word to lift up the humble. If you grasp the grace of God, friend, you can ultimately handle the truth about yourself because you know that God's love towards you is not based on anything in you, Instead, God's love for you is based on his own character. 
God's love for you is based on his own covenant promise in Christ Jesus to never leave nor forsake nor turn away any and all who come to him for refuge. His love for you is based on the sacrifice of his son. The sacrifice that exposes the very worst about you that exposes the fact that you can never do enough good to save yourself, a sacrifice that exposes you to the remedy of God for your sin, a sacrifice that God freely offers to you today. All you got to do is own up to the fact that you are a sinner, that you're in worse shape than you ever thought you could be. And the only hope you have is Jesus. The crucifixion of the Lord is the remedy for self-deception. But I wonder as believers, if there's a way to gauge our growth in this cross-shaped wisdom. I think Paul gives us at least one way, one measure in this passage. Look with me back at the text. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God. God's. Now Paul says in verse 21, let no one boast in men, a statement that he also made way back in chapter 1 where he said the gospel is designed not that we would boast in men, not that we would boast in the servants who present the gospel to us, not that we would even be able to boast in our own understanding because ultimately it's the Spirit of God who reveals spiritual truth. But here at the close of this paragraph and chapter, Paul's saying, look, there's no need for boasting in these teachers that you're aligning yourselves with because ultimately you don't belong to them. You belong to God. And God through Christ Jesus has given you everything that you could ever possibly desire. Translation, cross-shaped wisdom The kind of wisdom that's embracing humility and self-awareness over self-deception recognizes that all we have is a gift. When it comes right down to it, the Corinthian believers were boasting in their affiliations with and their direct connection to certain teachers of the faith. And Paul tells them that they have nothing to boast in because everything they have, they've been given. So there's no reason to boast in people. There's only reason to boast in God. Human wisdom, it tends toward human boasting. Have you ever picked up on that? Well, I know such and such. I've achieved such and such. I know so and so. We're actually pretty close. I own such and such. You can't tell me what to do with my life. It's my life. You do you and I'll do me. Let's just leave it at that. And why do we do this? 
so that we can quiet our consciences and convince ourselves through self-deception that our biggest problem, as I said at the beginning, is not inside of us. It's outside of us. Divine wisdom, on the other hand, tends toward boasting in God. This is why God chose to chart the course of human salvation through the humiliation of a cross. It confounds human wisdom that God would save the world in such a strange way. And it ultimately brings glory to him. The person trafficking then in divine wisdom, who is a humble recipient of that cross-shaped salvation, then has the ability to see that all of it is gift, everything. So we're not trying to hold on to some self-flattering dignity that will give us some security and sense of peace that won't last. No, we're able to let go of all of it and say, I don't deserve a thing, but Christ has given me everything. Paul says, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. You're not their groupies. They're gifts to you to serve you via the scriptures and the gospel of God. Don't go chasing after the wisdom of the world. The entire world already belongs to you. You're going to inherit it one day and rule over it with Christ Jesus himself. Life, death, doesn't matter. They all belong to you. Because death's now just a doorway into the presence of the Savior. The present, the future, guess what? That's yours too. And you didn't do anything to earn it. It's all gift. The person who's received the gift of salvation, the person who then sees that though those gifts are undeserved, they have been given freely from God. That person then begins to see that they belong not to themselves but to God. That their life is wrapped up in Christ's own life. This is the person who's able to say, it's all yours, God, including me, including me. Thank you for the gift of salvation and all that comes with it. I can be open about my faults. I can be open about my shortcomings. I don't have to blame other people for my wrongdoings. I don't have to atone for the things I've done wrong. I don't have to compare myself to the person that I think is worse than me. No, you know what? I can own it all because Christ paid for it all. And because I'm now free. And not only am I free, I'm owner of the entire creation. And I'm now owned by God himself. So here are two questions to help us determine how we're doing with self-deception. Are you and I growing in our heart readiness and eagerness to acknowledge that everything we have is a gift from God? A self-deceived person typically wants to take ownership of all the good and hide all the what? The bad. But a self-aware person says, all the good's a gift from God, and I don't have to worry about the bad anymore because Jesus paid for that. So 
So it's okay that I can let you see how messed up I really am. More specifically, are you and I growing in our God boasting? Our recognition that we deserve none of it, least of all the gift of salvation, and yet God in his grace has lavished his love upon us. The self-aware person's not only aware of his shortcomings, his sins, his faults, his foibles, his failures. The self-aware person traffics in grace traffics in the fact that God has given his all to undeserving sinners like you and me. And how can I not now show that grace, that same unmerited, unearned love to others who don't deserve it, but for whom Jesus died? You know, all of this requires ultimately that we slow down that we deliberately ask the Lord to do the deep work of exposing the recesses of our hearts. It requires the courage to admit that we may be wrong about areas of our lives that we once thought we were right about. It requires admitting to specific wrongs and weaknesses and deficiencies in my own character as the Spirit shows me these things and then submitting to the sometimes painful but always good surgical work of Jesus who intends to make me new from the inside out. And then it requires admitting that everything I have is a gift. Nothing that I have did I earn or do I own apart from the grace of God. In other words, becoming wise in the ways of God, by way of the cross, means coming to the end of myself, owning my need for a Savior, and embracing Christ by faith and by walking the way of the cross, the way of humility, with Christ as my master teacher, open-eyed to all my faults and all the potential that dwells within me for sin, and for self-deception, and open-handed to receive the grace that Christ gives. In fact, the grace that Christ is happy to give to those who are humble of heart. The grace that's necessary at the foot of the cross where humility is born to then grow up into Christ-likeness. I want to invite the worship team to come as we prepare to respond in song together. This morning, if you've come to a place where for the first time in your life, perhaps, your eyes have been opened to the ways that you have succumbed to self-deception. Perhaps you've been blaming people for years for all of the sin in your life and for its consequences. Perhaps you've been trying to do enough good to make up for the bad that you want to continue to do, thinking that somehow you can atone for those things and clear your conscience or at least quiet it a little bit. Perhaps today you realize that you've been walking through life comparing yourself to others, weighing out 
the bad that you do, the sin that you indulge in over against the worse sins of others. And Christ in his grace has come to you today. What one author calls in severe mercy. And he's exposed you for who you are. He's exposed the emptiness of the self-deception you've been engaged in. And he's calling you to humble yourself, to own your sin, to own your need for a savior. He's calling you to simply open your arms to him. If you'll do that in repentance and in faith, you will find him ready, eager, and waiting to receive you with more forgiveness than you can ever imagine with more peace than you've ever enjoyed trying to hide your sin, and with more hope than you ever dared believe possible. Would you collapse into his arms today? Would you end the self-deception? Would you own up to your sin? If you do that, you will find him faithful to forgive faithful to invade your life with incredible life-changing grace. And things will be different for you from this day forward. Let's pray.